Good morning. Our passage this morning is in Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. Please read along if you have your Bible. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which God has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills us all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Uh, I don't know about you, but I had a really full week. Uh, too full of a week, and sort of a crazy morning. I hope I'm not alone in that, right? I'm not the only one. Can I get an amen in the room? Uh, we've got some light problems. Normally, we bring the house lights down a little bit. I mean, when I'm singing, I don't have, like, the most beautiful face, right? So I don't want you all to see me. We've got light problems. Uh, I think the devil is in the system, breaking it again. Remember Pastor Nathan a few weeks ago, the lights were, like, coming in and coming out and coming in and coming out, his whole sermon. We've got slide problems. That's not the devil. That's just me. Um, So if there's any slide issues this morning, it's not Sarah's fault. It's my fault. (laughs) And I don't know about you, but again, I have these moments where my weeks are too full, and nobody did it to me. I did it to myself. I was at Sterling College again on Friday. It's where we left, but I went back to preach in chapel, and it was awesome, but it was too full, right? Like you just, I did it to myself. Uh, Too full of a week, too crazy of a morning, And whenever I get in these moments, I think about Psalm 46. Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. And uh, I think a lot of times we read it with that kind of tone, right? Like, be still and know that I am God, right? Like real chill and mellow. Read the rest of Psalm 46. That psalm is about God winning a war. So it's a little bit more of like thunder, right? It's a little bit more like, and, and, and here's what I realize. I don't know you. Like, I'm often at war with myself. Like, overscheduling myself, putting too much on my calendar, taking too much on, not saying no enough, right? Like, I'm often at war with myself, and I need the thunderous voice of the Lord that says, hey, yo, be still and know that I am God. You're not God. I am God. So can we do that this morning um, together. Can I just give us like a minute to center? I need it. It's going to be a terrible sermon if you don't give me this. (laughs) And like, what are you going to (laughs) do if I just stand up here for a minute and let us pray and listen to God? Okay. Okay. So let's do that. Let's just center ourselves.
Father in heaven, thank you for Psalm 4610, which reminds us, reminds me, that there are times where we just need your thunderous voice to yell at us that you are God and we are not. And that one of the first things we should do upon recognizing and remembering that truth is just be still and bask in the goodness of that and rest in the truth of that. I don't have to be God. We don't have to be God. You're already doing that job. So, Father, as we are still in this moment, I pray that we would operate from a place of rest and stillness and remembrance that you are at the center of the universe, you are God, and we are not. As we open the book of Ephesians here to engage together, to study together, to learn together, I pray that you would be made high, that your name would be highest, just as we sung about, and that ours can decrease, Lord. Not that our names are not important, but let us never forget how important and majestic and overall your name is. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Hey, one other thing I want to remind you all of, uh, we have a congregational meeting that is coming up in a couple of weeks, uh, not this next Sunday, Labor Day, but the following Sunday, uh, September 11th, uh, at the Leewood campus at 1.30 p.m. Normally, uh, we have one congregational meeting a year, right? So normally, this is, it's on the same Sunday that it always is, the second Sunday in September, but normally this is at 7 p.m. Now, now why might we have moved it to 1.30 p.m.? Chief's kickoff is 325, y'all. So I, I can promise you this is not going to be a long meeting, right? <laughs> Uh, and it's also a very straightforward but a beautiful meeting. We worship at these. Uh, listen, my morning was crazy. It was too crazy. That's my fault. Uh, when, you, when you have those moments, it's good to be able to do this with really great people, right? And we have an amazing church. So I'm back there in the booth, and it's chaotic, but I've got Sarah and Jeff with me there, right? Part of our congregation, part of our family. Uh, so that's what this is. This is a moment. This is a family meeting, an annual moment for us to affirm new elders and to affirm uh, a budget. And so there is a packet. There's a letter in a packet, a budget packet. This is out on the hello wall for you to grab this week or next. This available information is also available uh, on our website, cckc.church. But we actually are going to have at this a special Shawnee campus update. We've had a lot that has gone on uh, at our campus over the last year, and so we're featuring the Shawnee campus in telling the story of what God has been doing, is doing, and we trust and believe will continue to do. And so what does that mean? That means I would love for as many of you as possible to join us uh, at the Leewood campus at one 30 p.m. on Sunday, September 11th. So we know that's tough with naps. I mean, right, I've got young kids. Uh, Ethan will be napping during this time, but I will be there um, and would love to have you join as well. But actually for the sermon this morning, I wanted to start with kind of a weird question, and I hope that I'm not the only one who remembers using this, right, but the process of using an old-fashioned phone book. Okay, you're like, remember these? Now, I actually wanted to try to bring one with me I, I didn't know where to find one. <laughs> like, where do you find a phone book in 2022, right? But if I had been able to find one, we wouldn't have a picture. Instead, I would just would have held one up, and then if you, you hold it above your head and you drop it, and what, it's like thud, right? Depending on where you lived and grew up in the country, your, your hometown, it might have had just like a massive phone book. Now, if you live in a small town, it might have just been really tiny too, right? But but I grew up in the Chicagoland area, and so the phone book that we had in our home, I remember using it as a kid, like the yellow page after yellow page after yellow page. And I remember scrolling through, right, name after name after name after name after name, on and on and on, seemingly forever. Do you remember the businesses that would put like three A's in their name so they would, they would jump up? It's like early Google SEO, right? This is what they were doing. They're trying to get ahead of all the other names. Do you see? 
They're trying to get ahead of all the other names in the name book. I, you know, I, I looked it up. I, I'm, it's, it's always changing. It's always adding. Uh, there are, right now, the best estimates, best global census estimates is that there are 7.75 billion people on this planet. 7.75 billion people on this planet, and y'all, every single one of them has a name. Every single one of them has a name. Name after name after name after name. Or I thought about this too as I was preparing, right? We're about to enter into the throes of election season again. We've got the all-important midterms coming up. Are you ready to be overwhelmed by this phenomenon? You know what I'm talking about, right? Like just sign after sign after sign after sign. All of them, like, like the, the, I think the, the law, right? You can't put the sign too close to the polling place. So it's like inches beyond whatever the law is. And it's like all the signs right there. But then apparently I'm not allowed to be influenced when I'm in this, like however many feet it is, right? But sign after sign after sign. And all of these signs, what do they have on them? They've got a name. A name of someone who's saying, hey, I, we, I can fix your problems, right? Name after name after name. I've got a name. You've got a name. We have all got a name. But friends, we cannot miss this. Don't miss it. There's only one name. There's only one name that might compel us to pray like this. Only one. A lot of names out there. A lot of names in this room right now. A lot of names in the yellow phone book. There is only one name that might compel us to pray like what we see in this passage. Because I want to slow down for a second. I want to make sure we understand what I'm getting at. You heard Nathan. There's a name, right? Love Nathan. Just hung out with him and his family last night for dinner. You heard the passage read a few minutes ago from Nathan. It's an important name, right? But Nathan's name doesn't compel us to pray like this, as important, as good as a name as it is. But as Nathan read, what did you notice about Ephesians 1, 15 through 23? At its core, it's a prayer. It's a prayer. We're early on in the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. He's established sort of his thesis and where he's going, this kind of poem last week. And this is a prayer. It's one of his best and most beautiful prayers that we have from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And I want to talk about the prayer, but first, I actually want to kind of skip over the first part of the prayer and kind of get to the end, to the second part of this passage. And I want to highlight as I already have, the idea of someone's name, right? This comes from the end of this passage, in starting in the middle of verse 20, and I think I have this on the slide. When he, that's a reference to God, raised him, that's a reference to somebody else, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and here's the phrase, and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come, right? So you're following it. The first he in this phrase, or this verse here, that's a reference to God the Father. Now, God the Father did something. He raised someone else, and thankfully, we don't have to wonder. Let's just add back in. There's three dots, right? Add back in the beginning of verse 20, and the Apostle Paul has made it abundantly clear that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Friends, the question is easily answered if we look closely at this passage. Who did God raise from the dead? 
Jesus. Who did he play? What name is above every other name? The name of Jesus. You see why we sang that song, didn't we? Don't you? That's why the N is capitalized in this phrase. There is only one name that compels you to pray like this. Only one. The name of Jesus. Only one name. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's not even the Apostle Paul's who penned these words, who penned Holy Scripture. No. Only one name, and it is the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I've already mentioned that we're in the book of Ephesians. This is our second week. We started last week by looking at kind of Paul's thesis statement and this uh, opening poem that he has there in verses 1 through 14. And uh, now we are engaging the second part of Ephesians chapter 1, this beautiful uh, prayer of thanksgiving and uh, exaltation, uh, both towards the church in Ephesus and centrally towards the person, the one name of Jesus Christ. Now, Ephesus, the, the place to which Paul writes the letter of Ephesians, is one of the most influentially important cities of first century Roman Empire. And Paul knew this church really, really well. He was very, very close with the people that made up this holy body. Uh, but Ephesians is a circular letter, which means that it didn't stay in Ephesus, even though it started in Ephesus. It was circulated to the surrounding communities where the way of Jesus had spread out and sprung up into new churches, and so they could be blessed by this extraordinary letter as well. And we're also, we should say, we're using here in our moment, we're using the book of Ephesians, we're allowing it to help us as we seek to reconstruct our faith together this fall. Like you've noticed again with me the sharp increase in the amount of people who are talking about deconstructing their faith and we want to thoughtfully enter into that conversation and we want to do it with some help, with some guides. And so we think that the Apostle Paul and the letter to the church in Ephesus can be one of those guides. So that's where we are. That's what we're doing. Uh, and hopefully you, you joined us last week. You're joining us this morning. You'll come back as we walk this journey together. That's where we are in the book of Ephesians, reconstructing our faith. But I want to ask you, that's where we are. Do you know where the Apostle Paul was when he wrote these words? Do you know what he was up to when he sat down to pen the letter to the church in Ephesus. Don't miss this. I, this fascinates me. He was in prison. The Apostle Paul was in prison. He was in jail for preaching Christ when he writes the book of Ephesians, but you wouldn't know it from this prayer, would you? Like, how different is that than how I would have done it? If I'm in jail and I'm sitting down to write a letter to someone else, the first thing I'm going to write to them about, the first thing I'm going to ask for in terms of prayer requests is what? Get me out of here. <laughs> you wouldn't even know it. He, in fact, the first thing he does, what does he do? He doesn't even say, hey, here's what I need. He says, he is in prison. What's happening? He's praying for them. He's thanking God for them. Oh, this blows me away, Right? And what I think is true is that Paul was anchored so deeply in Jesus that he was compelled to beautifully and powerfully look beyond his circumstances. He was compelled to have his vision raised up. My vision needs to be raised up so often. And Paul was compelled to have his vision raised up to see how God was still at work in the world even while he wore chains. And he was compelled to pray like 
this because there's only one name. There's only one name that compels you to pray like this. And it was a name that Paul knew and cherished well. Now let's break down the name of Jesus a bit more. We're going to start at the end, then we'll work backwards into the prayer. But we're going to take in verses 19 through the beginning of 22. I'm not sure what I've got on the slides here, but follow along with me as I read Scripture again. He says, And I also pray that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, and we've seen this already, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And the beginning of verse 22, and he put all things under his feet. Right? So in these verses, Paul is still praying, but it's almost like he gets distracted, but he doesn't, Paul's too smart for that. This is an intentional lane shift. It's not distracted. He shifts lanes. He just can't help himself almost. And he begins to extol the greatness of Jesus and Jesus' name. And with this idea of Jesus' name, right, it's kind of getting at this, this, point of like the rank, the rank of someone's name, right? Like Jesus and his name, they are ranked number one. Or I thought about this, right? They're ranked number one. It's like, it's like Jesus and his name are the first seed in the March Madness tournament, except unlike KU, they won't lose in the Elite Eight. Well, I know they won this year, right? I know they won this year, but that's still, that's a good joke, right? Okay, so, so Jesus and his name, they are ranked number one. They're the top seed in the tournament. Like, that's sort of the idea here. The name, that is what? That is ranked above. That is above. Nothing else is higher. There's no other name that is higher. Okay, and, and furthermore, follow along with me. We have to understand this uh, because it, it, it might hit us in a, in a different way. But what Paul gets at in these verses is that the name of Jesus is ranked highest now. The name of Jesus is highest now. The logical flow of these verses I actually think is really clear, right? Jesus willingly submitted himself to death, but he didn't stay that way. Instead, the Father raised him from the dead by the power of the Spirit, but then what happened? Well, in in this passage, there doesn't even seem to be an inch of a break, right? God raises Jesus from the dead, and then what? He immediately seats him at his right hand, far above all rule and authority, with the name above every other name, so on and so forth, right? There's an immediacy to it. Jesus submitted himself to to death, didn't stay dead, because God in the power of the Spirit raised him, and then there's no lag time, Right? This isn't like buffering on the internet. It's just immediately Jesus is placed in this position of authority. His name is the highest right now. And it was then, immediately after being raised from the dead. Right? There's an immediacy to it. The name of Jesus is highest now. Paul's clear. The name of Jesus is highest now. But, but I know, you know too, right? Often this doesn't feel true. Often this doesn't feel true, right? We experience the world and doesn't, doesn't, it, doesn't our experience every day in the world often more feel like other names are higher than Jesus' name? I was thinking about it. In some ways, right now in this moment that we're all living together on this earth, doesn't it feel as though the name of Vladimir Putin is higher than Jesus? Doesn't it feel that way? Certainly, his name is being discussed more in media outlets. 
Certainly, Putin is having an outsized and horrific impact on our world in this moment. But is his name higher than Jesus, like actually higher than Jesus? No. No. It is not. But that's the thing, right? We have to live in the tension of that. We have to live in the tension of that. We have to live in the tension that exists between the supremacy of God's better plan in Jesus. We talked about that last week in the first part of Ephesians 1. And Paul's abundantly clear. The name of Jesus is highest. It's highest now. God does have a better plan. It centers in Christ Jesus. There's no bones about it from what Paul says here at the beginning of Ephesians. But we have to live in the tension of the truth of those two things and the seemingly unadulterated current brokenness of our world. If we're not like being honest about that and trying to figure out how to hold together that tension, what are we even doing here? What are we even doing here? And actually, that tension, and I feel that with you. I see it in your lives. I see it in my life. I see it in Ukraine right now. It's my heart breaks for my Ukrainian brothers and sisters, right? I see that. I feel that. I live that. I know you're with me. And all of that tension... It actually reminded me of the classic work of children's literature from author C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia. And, and the first one that he wrote, right? So the second in the order of the seven books. But The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first one that he penned. The tension that I'm describing here, it reminded me of the darkest moment in that book. Right here. Aslan is the great lion who stands in this book series as a Christ figure. He's about to be slain. He's tied up. The wicked white witch believes that she has won the day. She thinks that her dark magic has conquered the great and glorious lion once and for all. This is an overwhelmingly sad moment. This is a surpassingly hard moment. It's a deeply confusing moment if you followed the story to this point in it. And friends, doesn't our world often feel this way? Doesn't your life, doesn't your life often feel this way? Well, we can't forget what happens next, can we? Let's watch. Did you hear Susan? Like she turns around and the table is broken and Aslan's gone. She doesn't even have a category. 
What does she say? What have they done? She has no category for what actually was going to happen. Part of why the world seems so upside down is that we don't work in categories like God works in his categories. His economy is so different than ours. His victory came through losing. His crown as rightful king of the universe came through a horrific death on a cross that he didn't deserve. In order to receive the glory, honor, and power due to him that Paul describes in this passage, he first surrendered and laid down all the trappings of heaven. Or famously, as Jesus says himself, right? The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Think about Jesus saying that to his disciples. Do you think in his mind he was like, and I was first? <laughs> you know, it's like, no. I mean, he was. But he willingly became last. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. And before Jesus called anyone else to walk that road, before he called you or I, to pick up our crosses, to bid us to come and die, before he asked us to do that, Jesus walked it first. Never once wavering, never once straying, even though that road of the first being last led him straight to rejection, suffering, and death. Cross first, then resurrection. Suffering first, Then he was raised to be seated at his right hand in the heavenly places. Rejection first. Then he was placed far above all other rule and authority and power and dominion. Death first. And then his name was placed above every other name. That is the way of Jesus. But right again, like all of that, death, cross, Rejection, suffering, all of that first, but then resurrection, right? Then new life again, redeemed life again, highest name in heaven again. All of that took place 2,000 years ago. The name of Jesus is highest now. And I understand that we have to live in the tension of that. I'm trying to do that with you. Part of how we live in the tension is by reminding ourselves over and over and over again is that no matter what you're going through in your life, no matter how dark or broken it actually is, this is true. This is true. You know, all of these phrases that I've mentioned, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all other rule and authority and power and dominion and including our main phrase from the sermon today, above every name that is named, not only in this age to come. Paul's actually doing some really technical work with these phrases. He's speaking to realities that the church in Ephesus would have automatically understand and understood within their context. And all of these sort of technical phrases that he is laying out here, all of them are summed up in the phrase that he has at the beginning of verse 22. And that phrase reads, And God put all things under the feet of Jesus. That's simple, clear, and straightforward. There's no questions left. And God put all things. How many things? One thing? Two things? No. All things. Make a list of all the things. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. You forgot one or two. You have to add them. Make a list of all the things. Where are they? All of those things. All the things. Where are they? They're under the feet of Jesus because his name and he, he is highest now. The name of Jesus is highest now, but here's where Paul goes next. 
at the very end of this passage. That's kind of through verse 22 for the first part of verse 20. Here's where he goes next, okay? Follow it with me. The end of verse 22. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things. Where did he give him? So he's put him over all things, but where did he give him? He's put him over all things, but where did he give him? He gave him to the church. And the church is his body. The church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's just extraordinary. Put him over all things, highest name, above all names, and gives him to the church. Here it is. The name of Jesus should be most cherished in the church. The name of Jesus should be most cherished in the church. And I really, 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 really wanted to write is. The name of Jesus is most cherished in the church. I wanted to. But then I started thinking about a lot of the churches that I know. Then I started thinking about a lot of the pastors that I know. And I decided that we needed to be a little honest instead. And I'm not saying that there aren't churches and church leaders who rightfully and beautifully cherish the name of Jesus. The cherishing of the name of Jesus and his name in local churches is happening all over the world today. And it has happened too in the past in churches all throughout human history. And hopefully, prayerfully, it's happening in this church right here, right now. I'm not trying to paint a picture of all doom and gloom. I'm not bashing on our church. I'm not bashing on any specific church. But you don't have to live long, and you don't have to attend that many churches, and you don't have to meet that many pastors before you realize that we should be aspirational about this. Because we are all super-duper broken. And some of the deepest pain that can come in your life or my life is when people that should most cherish the name of Jesus, what did God do with the name of Jesus? He gave it to the church. We should cherish his name most of all. It's a unique kind of pain when those people and those churches hurt you or hurt me. It's hard. And I know there's stories in this room right now where that exists and is true. And, and desperately we want this to be true here at Christ Community. Right, in a very real sense, I think we should ask the question of any church, who's really in charge? Who's really in charge? Who really is the head? We should ask that question. And, and, and here, I'm telling you, we are doing it imperfectly. We are stumbling forward Right, like we're trying to make it happen, but like you know, it's just it's hard, and we fail often. This is I just have said this in a number of different churches I've had the privilege of being part of. Like I can promise you, we're not a perfect church, but I can promise you, we're trying, and we're not going to stop trying. Right? We're going to keep trying. We're going to commit to that. And when we fall short, we're going to admit it. We're going to ask for forgiveness. In the name of Jesus. Are you seeing this, right? The thread of the name of Jesus. What do we pray in? Jesus' name. What do we ask for forgiveness in? Jesus' name, right? He's at the center of what we're trying to do here. And yes, we are doing it really, really brokenly and at times poorly. And I'm really sorry about that. But at Christ Community Church, Jesus is in charge. And here's, here's this idea of the word cherished, right? 
I, I chose that word really intentionally. I think it's, a, I think it's an important word. When pastors and Christians stop cherishing Jesus, that's when they forget that he's in charge. When pastors and Christians stop cherishing Jesus, that's when they forget that he's in charge, and especially pastors, right? This is the dynamic that you see. When the pastor stops cherishing Jesus, who does he or she think is in charge? Themselves. And that, they're going to burn it all down. And it might not look like they're burning it all down. They are burning it down. The moment that any of us, in any position of leadership, stops cherishing Jesus, we are in danger of burning it down. Because the next thing that will happen is you will forget that he is in charge, not you, not me. So we must cherish Jesus. We have to. And right, it's like when you start to cherish Jesus, when you do that again and again and again, day after day after day, when you practice his presence, when you press in deeper to him and his name, what happens? You're like, gosh, I want that guy in charge. It works the opposite way than when you forget to cherish Jesus. Isn't that true? When you really press in deeper and you begin to cherish Jesus, you're like, let me get out of the way. This is what happens with Paul, isn't it? He's in prison, but he so deeply cherishes Jesus and his name, and he's like, I'm fine. I'll get out of the way. God's got this. Jesus' name is highest. Doesn't need to be me. Can't be me. If it's me, what happens if it's me, right? What happens if it's me? This is the Apostle Paul. I burn it all down. Is that not his story? We talked about it a little bit last week, right? It's worth revisiting. He had constructed his life and story in the way of the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And at first, his construction of the world left absolutely zero room for Jesus. He had no category for it. Just like Susan had no category for how Aslan could rise, Paul had no category for how the way of Jesus could start on a cross because one who hangs on a cross is cursed. He knew his Bible better than you or I do. And so Jesus actually was a violent imposition to the way of God. That's what the Apostle Paul would have said. And so a violent imposition to the way of God needs to be dealt with violently. And so he was, standing, standing in approval of the first martyr, Stephen. Do you remember this in Acts 7? Stephen cherished Jesus. Think about the power dynamics in that room. The most powerful people in Stephen's world. Let's just go read Acts 7 again. Stephen, this is like the glory of the Lord shone upon him. The Spirit fell upon him. And he got murdered. And who is standing over the, that, those proceedings? Saul. And this is where it goes, right? Beginning of Acts 9, just listen to his story. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way. Oh, I love that. The way. We're not called Christians until later. Oh, because what are we doing? What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So belonging to the way, the way of Jesus. Any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
Now as he went on, oh, do you see this? Now as he went on his way, because he had constructed it differently, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light, not darkness because it's Jesus, a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not my church, but me. Because what happened? Ephesians 1, right? We just did this. What happened? Seated Jesus above everything else, and where did he give him? To the church. And so what does Jesus say to Paul? Saul, you are persecuting, not the church, you're persecuting me. And Saul said, who are you, Lord? Doesn't have a category. We killed that guy. Doesn't have a category for how this would happen. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the equation of him and his church. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless. They didn't, they didn't stand peachless. I don't know how you would do that. They didn't have any peaches. <laughs> they heard the voice, but they saw no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate or drank. This is the same guy who letter in the, the, later in the letter to the church in Galatia. Galatians 2.20. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You could spend six weeks thinking about the richness in that phrase. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When I live, it is Jesus. That's how closely I'm equating those things. When I live, it is Jesus. And actually, right, that's how deeply I cherish him, but actually it might be, to die might be gain. Well, why? Because then you would be with Jesus. Same guy, breathing out threats of murder against the followers of the way. Same guy. What's the transformation? What happens? He cherishes Jesus. He cherishes Jesus and his name. That's what happens. That's the difference. How about us? The name of Jesus should be most cherished in the church. Now, okay, let's keep tracking the logic. And as we close, I want us to see how these two ideas actually fold back in and create and compel us, create a person and compel that person to pray in the way that the Apostle Paul prays. Because don't forget, this whole passage is what? It's a prayer. It's a prayer, okay? So we'll see it. Let's see how it all fits. We're going to work backwards. First, if we cherish Jesus in his name, then we won't have any trouble with him as the head. We won't have any trouble with him in charge. In fact, we will want that. Okay, then second... If we remember and rest in the truth that Jesus and his name are higher than all the others, then right now, even though it's hard, we can trust in him and we can lay down our fears, worries, anxieties, circumstances, our problems. We can lay it all at his feet because we cherish him. We trust that he is highest now, even when it doesn't seem like it. And then what happens as a result? We'll be able to pray like the Apostle Paul prays. Do you see it? Okay, so are you ready for it? What happens in this prayer? Verses 15 through 20, we're backing up here. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. 
right? So he starts from this place of, I'm thinking about you first and foremost, right? And what excites him? What does he want to give thanksgiving for? Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. This is a centrality for Paul. He's thinking about them, but even as he thinks about them, there's a centrality in that to Jesus. I'm thinking about you, but I'm so pumped because I've heard that Jesus is central in your faith and your heart and your life and your love toward all the saints. You don't discriminate. We'll get there. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for all of you. I'm always doing that. I'm not ceasing at all. I'm remembering you in my prayers that the God, and here it is, here's what I'm praying. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. I love this phrase in verse 18. Tuck this one in for you. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Oh, I love that. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, what? That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, that's your whole life, you're doing something with your whole life there, according to the working of his great might, that he actually worked that great might, he worked that great might, worked that great might in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and we're back where we started. You see how these two parts fit together, how they tether together, how the back end of this, right, compels and allows and creates a person in the Apostle Paul that can pray like this, even as he's doing it with shackles on his hands. This is extraordinary to me. And there's a lot within his prayer, but what's at the center of it? Knowledge. Did you catch that? Verses 17 and 18, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. You're knowing something. You're enlightened. That you may know, dot, dot, dot. Over and over and over again, the center of this prayer is that Paul's praying, I want you to know. I want you to know. I want you to increase in knowledge. And we have to be really, really careful with that. Because we read that in our cultural moment, our cultural modern moment, and what do we think? Knowledge is information. That's about as far as we go. I didn't know something. I was lacking information. And then I Googled it. <laughs> right? Like that. And now I know it. And we stop short. Is that what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 1? No. Not even close. He would be actually horrified. <laughs> If, if he knew that how many of us stop there, in, he, in Hebraic understanding of knowledge, it, it's so much more comprehensive and robust and actually beautiful and better than that. It's better than that. It's not about merely correcting a limited information problem. That's not it. To know is to do, and to do is then to better know. To know is to do. This is why in James, right, the brother of Jesus... He says, like, it's a bad thing when you, you look in the mirror and you walk away and you forget what you look like. Blessed is the man who what? Man or woman who knows and then does. Because to know is to do, and when you do, then you better know. There's a feedback loop, a beautiful and blessed feedback loop in this understanding of knowledge that we so often miss. This is the idea of growing in your knowledge of God so that you better live the way of God. 
And then as you better live the way of God, do you know what that does? It leads you right back to a deeper and better understanding and knowing. And this is what Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. Do you see the difference? The question is, I know you do, do you, do you want that difference? It's easier to just Google something and move on with your day, isn't it? Like, Ashley and I were listening to the song yesterday by the Beatles. It's like, hey, which one of them sang this? I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is Lennon. But I didn't know. So what did I do? Pulled out my phone and Googled it. Not Lennon, it's McCartney. So now I know. Do you know, what I, do you know how that changed my life? Zero percent. <laughs> I guess I preached about it. So, 1%. Like, do you understand? It's like, that's, that's not what's happening here. It's something so much better and deeper and more beautiful than that. So, do you want that difference? Do you want your knowledge of God to grow that you might more deeply anchor your life in Him? Do you want to cherish Jesus and His name more? Do you want to better trust and rest in the truth that Jesus is highest now with authority over all? Do you want to pray like this? Do you want to live like this? And here's what happens. Oh, man, I've seen this, and I've lived it myself, okay? Paul, he corrects the problem that he knows happening, not, not here in Ephesians 1, but go with me to 1 Corinthians 13 just for a second, right? Because what was happening at the church in Corinth? They were growing in knowledge, and what did it do to them? It puffed them up. It puffed them up. And they started to think that they were great because they had these big heads of knowledge. Read 1 Corinthians 13. It gets quoted in weddings. It gets misquoted in weddings, right? Because what he's doing there, he said, when you just have knowledge without love, you are not... <laughs> you know what he says? Where's Steve? The gong in band, right? Steve Gordon, band teacher. You need that big hit at the end of the song. You've got the seventh grader. Boom! Right? It's like, hit it harder. You're not giving me enough. But what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 is that if you only have knowledge and not love, if, you've divorced, if knowledge is just information and it's not leading you to love God and love people better, you are nothing but a resounding gong in the way you live your life. Paul is so brilliant. So the, if the Ephesians, they needed to grow in knowledge. We need to grow in knowledge. But we can't go down the pathway of our knowledge meaning that we're just less lovely and less loving to God and to others, or we're just going to be like a resounding gong. So let's not do that. But gosh, if we were to grow in knowledge like this, I think we'd pray like this, and I think we'd live like this, and I think we would love like this. There's only one name. There's only one name that might compel us to pray like this. Now here's where I want to close. Do I have the slides, Johnny? Do I have the prayer slides? Okay. I want us to practice praying like this. And actually, I want us to practice praying this exact prayer. Call and response. I'll act as the leader, but I invite you to, to, to join in with me in this moment. And I want us to cherish the name of Jesus together as we do this, as we close this sermon. Let's trust the name of Jesus, and let's pray like the Apostle Paul. We follow the example of the Apostle Paul in praying, and you can follow me, that the Lord God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, 
And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? In the name of the resurrected, ascended, and enthroned Lord Jesus, God over all, our authority and leader to the church, the highest name that there is, amen.